Wow. Sir John Timpson, the CEO of Timpson. One of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever interviewed. I came off the interview scribbling notes because everything he said was golden. How we treat those who work with us on the journey of building our business. Where do we place kindness as a value? What does the high street look like? How can we empower people to be the best versions of themselves? What is upside down management? Why does Mr. Men come into their hiring process? This interview is going to blow your mind. Make sure you have the cup of tea, the pen, the pad of paper and dream big. Become the best version, the kindest version of incredible human being that you can. Anyway, just enjoy, enjoy and feel inspired. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hello, John. Gosh, it is so wonderful to meet you. I know we've both been trying to do this for a little while. We've had a a few ups and downs by getting the microphone to you, COVID, all these sorts of things. But welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Well, thank you very much. I've got so many questions, so I'm going to just try and calm myself down. You have long, long been a hero of mine. You're here over the high street, but we're going to just start with something that we've been dealing with. This period of time, I've been reading articles that um, you've been interviewed about COVID and the high street. And, uh, you know, the encouragement that I've been trying to give small businesses about pivoting, adapting their offer um, and basically trying to survive to get out to the other side. It happened all so quickly Tell me, as the person with so many businesses on the high street, it must have been incredibly difficult to shut down. Can you talk to me about this period of time? You know, it was a lot easier to shut down than open up again. Really? I mean, we only had a day to do it. I mean, we, the actual fact we decided to close our shops ahead of being told we had to do it by, uh, by the Prime Minister, simply because it was the only way to keep everything safe for us. It was quite clear it was coming anyway. So we decided on a Saturday, and we got them all closed on the Monday. And that was the Monday the announcement came and said we had to do it anyway. So that, that was sort of traumatic, but pretty easy. It's getting things going again. It's difficult. Not helped. I mean, the, obviously, the great shock was the fact that we suddenly started losing two and a half million pounds a week because uh, you haven't got, oh. any, uh, got any shops open. You've got no turnover coming in. So it was a pretty mighty relief when uh, Rishi Sunak, 
made his announcement about the furlough scheme and the, uh, the, the rates holiday and all the other measures which have helped us get through financially. But, I mean, we couldn't, couldn't do it just using his help. We had to do a lot as well. And I think, actually, although it's been a difficult journey, we've learned probably more about running a business in the last 18 months than we had done in the last 10 years plus. And we've come out of it, I think, a better business. And you know, I, I actually think, contrary to what everyone, everyone's views going in, that going around shops now, I think the high street, the town centres, are a lot better than we ever thought they were going to be. People yeah. are coming back shopping, and some of those empty shops are being filled by new retailers. Uh, okay, there were one or two major uh, casualties right at the beginning, uh, Arcadia and... Uh, uh, Debenhams and so on, but I mean, that was going to happen anyway. Yeah, I think that we've 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 certainly learned a lot from it. So, not great to go through, but uh, the long term, there's not going to be a long term problem, I think, caused by it. And uh, if anything, we're better for the experience. You were one of the first companies, and we're going to go on to uh, your philosophies, and 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 and, and it feels. It, totally intrinsic to how you believe in treating your staff, that you're one of the first companies, weren't you, to top up the furlough payment to a 100%. And you were just talking about how you actually were closing the shops before you were even told you had to. Was that just like an instant decision? Yeah. I mean, well, we do lots of instant decisions. We can do because we're a family business. And we don't you know, we can we can run it on the hoof, as it were. Mm-hmm. But uh, we never thought of doing anything else. I mean, as far as we're concerned, the government were paying eighty percent, actually eighty percent of two thousand a month. It was, wasn't it? But I mean, yep. our colleagues relied on having their basic salary to live, and their families relied on it. And we thought the right thing to do. Actual fact, it cost us fifteen million in total to do it, but was to guarantee right from the off that they would still get their basic salary. So they didn't have a lot of the worries that other people had. And uh, we, needed, we knew that we needed their support all the way through this to, to be successful. So it was, to us, a pretty obvious thing to do. You know, I know small businesses will be listening to this to think, how on earth did you manage to make that decision with such a vast sum of money? Um, and I'm thinking about small businesses when they were trying to keep their staff um, during this period of time. Is is this something that I would say is the partnership between yourself and those that work with you? Is this sort of the bond that you've created? Everyone wears a badge which says they're part of the family. And uh, it says on it, part of the family since uh, whatever the date is they joined. And that's the way we treat it because, I mean, our success totally depends on the people who work for us. I mean, they, the business create, gets its turnover by people in shops providing a service for the customers. So everything we do is aimed at supporting the people who support the customers. Yeah, That's why we think people are at the centre of everything we are doing. And it, that leads me on to this. I mean, when I heard this, and I know you've you've spoken about it out in the big wide world, but it has just literally stuck me, with me as a businesswoman. You've revolutionised management and famously coined the phrase upside down management. Um, could you tell me, uh, for those who are listening who haven't heard about this, more about this concept because this blew my mind and I have 
literally had you pinned up, John, on my wall ever since hearing about this. So it would be my honour to hear it firsthand. OK, well, it all came about about 25 years ago. So, I mean, it's not new. We've been doing it a long time. And it comes from what we've already talked about, that uh, our success really depends on the quality of the service we provide our customers. That's the key. And the way to give a great service, the way to give an exceptional service, the only one way to do it, you don't do it through lots of training courses and, and telling people how, what phrases they should use. The only way to do it is to give the people who serve the customers the freedom to do it the way they want. Mm -hmm. So that's the start of it. And I've seen since that, that was absolutely the right call, that people who have got are trusted with the freedom to serve customers the way they want will give some exceptional service. But then it it was a question of freeing them up. And uh, so we had a lot of things to overcome. We had to uh, tackle the problem of our middle management, particularly the area managers who said, how can I do my job if I'm not allowed to tell people what to do? Yes. Uh, which, I, I mean, I couldn't understand the point, but uh, we had to actually encourage people, train people to, that you can do your job, you can run a team without telling people in the team what to do because your job is to actually support the people in the team and cut away, cut out any obstacles that get in their way of doing a great job. That's what you're, what you're helping them to do the very best job they can do. And then we realised that we, like everyone else, was very much a head office-based business, that uh, everyone out there in the field believed that head office could tell them what to do and everyone in the head office thought they ran the business and issued orders. So we, we had to change all that round. And uh, so now uh, people, who, we don't call it head office anymore, but uh, those people who are not in the shops are there to support the people who are, not to tell them how to do the job. Right. So we cut out all their thoughts of policy and process. Uh, we don't send out standing orders of telling people exactly how to do the job. We're just trying to do everything we can to give people out there in the shops the freedom to do things the way they want. We have two rules, only two rules. You've got to look the part and put the money in the till. Beyond that, right. you can do whatever you like. Charge, charge what you want, put whatever you like in the shop window. You can paint the shop whatever colour you want. I don't care. It's, it, if, it, if that's what you think's right, then I'm, I'm behind you. And it, we've Gradually, gradually, we discovered how to do it, and we discovered the biggest bonus of this. There is one key little bit which is terribly important. It only works with the right people. Right. And so, for the last twenty-five years, we've just been we've just been hiring people with personality. We want Mrs. Key, Mrs. Bright, Mrs. Happy, Mrs. Talkative, whatever, and we don't want Mr. Grumpy, Mr. Scruffy, Mrs. Mrs. Slow. They're the people who don't help you in business. So. I hope when you go to one of our shops now, you're going to meet a, a character, a personality yes. who can talk who can talk to you. We're going to go on to the Mr. Men characters, Mr. and Mrs. characters. But, you know, now we talk about, don't we, these words, you know, authenticity. And uh, it's about people. And actually, um, you know, when we're looking at a world that's going into automization and all these sorts of, you know, hu the human character is so important. Now, these are things that you recognized a long time ago and was willing to build a model around this and I'm sure you know so many businesses now are taking inspiration with what you've done would you say 
for someone who wants to be that maverick, to change things up, I've got to say, am I right in thinking it didn't land on your plate? You know, you haven't got it right from day one, that this is actually something you have sort of a vision of how you want to lead a business and then it's iterations and it and it sort of evolves? No, yeah, well, it it took five years to really get the thing to start to bed down. And then and another the last twenty years it's just get it just gets stronger every year because it it's almost a cult, it's a religion in our business that everyone understands what upside down management is about. That's the culture. Yeah. And I think everyone enjoys the fact that everyone else they're working with has got it as well. They understand it, and uh, and if they don't, if, if we've got someone who isn't right for the business, they actually try and encourage them to ask them to find their happiness elsewhere. Because that's not, there's nothing worse than asking someone who's really great understands what we're about to work alongside someone who gets in the way. So that's all, all yeah. part of clearing obstacles out. I'm afraid part of clearing obstacles. And and do you think that um, when we think about who's listening to this podcast today, you know, small businesses, founders. Do you think there's something that they can learn specifically about what you're talking about, about this ultimately human connection, mm. emotional connection? It's, it, is it an area that you think maybe independent businesses can win at? Oh, certainly. I mean, I, I think uh, one, of, one of the great pluses an independent business has is they are close to the customer than someone who's working in a head office. Yeah. They, are, they are in there, in the business with the people. I, uh, but I... Quite often asked by people setting up a business or the start of their business career as to what are the what are the most important things they should remember, and I generally say, uh, watch the cash, make sure you, you're you're looking at the bank yep. account every day, and also uh, make sure you've got the right people. And then, what mistakes you most make? Well, the biggest problem you've got is hanging on for people who aren't good enough for too long. Everyone will tell you that over the years, how many times you you give them a second, third, and fourth chance. Oh, yes. Because, because you can't face it. You, it's a difficult job anyway. Th- those are three things to start with. And uh, they're very often, I can give you that for a starter, and they're lessons you, in the ordinary event, might not learn for two or three years when it comes back and bites you. John, I was once told... Um, if you think someone's wrong in your business, you're six months late. As in, you probably got an inkling six months ago that they were wrong, but you've been putting on plasters, you've been giving them a second mm. chance. And actually, so, yeah, it's, it's quite an interesting uh, point that that would be one of your three um, three points about starting a business. Yeah, and um, everyone else in the business, when that person disappears, they say, why didn't you do it ages ago? Because everyone's just waiting for that person to disappear. And and did you feel that maybe your middle management, in a way, the way that you were turning this upside down, almost became coaches and facilitators to all those in the shops? You know, they were almost coaching potentially them to do it their way. And maybe they had mm. a blockage or something. Was their aim to facilitate them to be the best versions of them? Well, the way it used to work, uh, I mean, we, we have an area management team and every shop is part of one of the areas. We've got 50 areas in total. We've got a lot of shops. Uh, but the way it used to happen is we had literally a list of standing orders for shoe repair factories, standing order for telling, saying exactly how the job should be done, what they, how they open yep. the shop in the morning, how you deal with each job, everything. It was 
And the area manager was going around like policemen to check that everyone was sticking to the orders. And that, that was very much the way people think a business should be run. You, you set the style, of the, the, the policy from mm-hmm. the centre, you put a process that puts that policy into practice and make sure everyone sticks to the rules. Yes. That's the classic way of running the business. The majority. Yeah, absolutely. So we clear away all those rules. We don't have any standing orders. We say, you, you, you run the shot the way you, you, you want. And so what actually happens is the area team, obviously very key, is to pick the right people in the first place. Mm-hmm. We also identified another thing they've got to do is to pick the people who aren't, aren't right for us and help them to find a job that is right for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but but also they become mentors. Right. Yes. They wanted to make sure that that person working in one of our shops can just get on the on with the job of looking after the customers, doing doing the keys and the watch repairs and everything else, without having anything else to bother about. Mm. They take all those worries away from. Yeah. And actually, a lot of those worries are nothing to do with work. A lot of the problems that our area managers come to deal with. Quite a lot of financial problems. We have mm-hmm. a hardship fund. We've got actually we've got one person, uh, Marion, who whose job is to help people with their financial problems. She's just a sort of internal advisor. And then there's health problems. There's family problems. There's bereavement. All these things that actually are part of people's lives, but they're they're the they're the big events which get in the way of people being able to turn up and be relaxed at their, at their job. And, uh, so it's very a big part of an area manager's life is to be a personal mentor, not just a business mentor. Oh my goodness! I I knew I knew this would be like this. I'm 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 literally scribbling notes as you're speaking, and I know everyone listening is doing the same. So um, in 2018, John, uh, before COVID, you chaired the government's high street report, um, looking at important you know the important role that the high street plays in society. I'm a massive, massive champion of the independent high street. And I'm worried about the future, although slightly excited about some of the changes that we're seeing. I'm fascinated to know your vision uh, for the future high street and town centres. And of course, the pandemic has, I think, probably, would you agree, sped things up? Do you, What do you see the high street becoming in the future, you know, because we've lost some big names to it. Do you think it's going to pave the way to budding new shoots of, I don't know, excitement? Yeah, I do. I do, really. First of all, I, I, I prefer, and you used it, I'm pleased to hit the, the, the term town centres rather than the high street. Yes. What we need, every town centre, I think, needs to attract the community. You need a community hub where people can go. And I think, in fact, one thing you've learned from COVID is, that human contact is very important. And you don't get a lot of human contact from internet shopping. But also, I think town centres, if you talk about town centres, you're not saying shopping centres, you're talking town centres. And and the future of the high street isn't just about shops. So you need to have other things to attract people in. Obviously, medical centres and leisure centres and certainly lots of cafe bars and restaurants and all that sort. It should be a a fun place to go and easy to get there. But as far as the shops themselves, I think that all those uh, businesses that are disappearing actually weren't the ones that people went to town centres for because they were going to out-of-town places to to shop with uh, some of these big... 
or all the big big mouths of Medway Hall Centre and Blue Water or wherever it is. And actually, we we probably did did a disservice to uh, the. Uh, shoppers over the last 50 years by having identical streets. Yes. It's what happened after the war when there was a lot of redevelopment and some some cities were literally raised to the ground and you had more new shopping centres then than ever before. And the multiple uh, retailers were able to afford the rents no one else could. And that's how you got identical high streets. Mm. And then they were the same ones that went to the out-of-town ones and were in the big... And so it's boring, and we've got the same thing. So now I think what you're starting to see and I, 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 is really great uh, that to think of the prospect of it is lots more independent ideas opening up in town centres as an, uh, the town centre develops in a new way. But to get it all together, I mean, it's a big, it's a big call for a lot of local authorities. They need to reimagine what their town centre needs to be in 20 years' time. Yes. And... And they need to make some bold decisions, like get rid of quite a lot of those shops, mm-hmm. knock them down, turn them into housing, get some more life into life, i.e., people living in the town centres. That will help, and make and, and bring in all the things that people do, whether they're the gyms or, the, as I say, restaurants, bars, and medical centres, and and also cater for the small retailers and people like us, the service retailers, because there are there are a lot of us who who will never, ever have a big presence on the internet. Yes. Because you can't get your hair cut on the internet. No. Do you not get frustrated, though? Can I just ask you this? Because this is, you know, I'm a champion and I've only been doing it for a microsecond. You have been, do you know what I mean? The government has asked you to do this report. One of the things when you say town centres need to be reimagined, do you think that local authorities or those in charge of reimagining are able to reimagine because I found that quite frustrating being someone who's avidly interested in townscape planning, for instance, in my local towns. I feel like they're not bold enough, entrepreneurial enough. And I I worry that being left to their devices, we will keep having clone towns rather than hometowns. No, you are absolutely right. And where I hope it's going to happen, I'm not involved in the... uh, the task force which was set up following the uh, report I made, because uh, I decided I'm not a committee man, as you can probably gather, it's not uh, my <laughs> scene. But I talked about upside-down government, which was, uh, because I was saying what the government should be doing is to make it easier for local authorities, for retailers, for property people and all the rest of it to, to change things. So some of that's happening. I mean, the, the planning rules are, have got a lot easier. But also I talked about the need for some really inspirational local leaders. And what what you want is want each individual town to have its individual plan. So it's not a question of going around having a process. It's going back. Yes. And all that is needed is about five towns to come up with a brilliant scheme, not the same one, five different schemes, mm-hmm. and inspire the rest. And then we get going. Yes. And they can understand what we are talking about, something which is the mixture of all parts of the town economy working together. 
and encouraging a lively new type of retailing, which is going to be a lot more small shops, yeah. I think. So it's almost the communities coming together, because I know that was part of your report, wasn't it? The communities, the freedom to come together and rejuvenate their own local areas. And you've also recommended this National High Street Perfect Day. Tell, tell me about that, because here you're saying empower the towns, empower the communities... And and come up with your own structures. They can all be, you know, higgledy piggledy. But ultimately, this is showing you that it doesn't need to be a cookie cutter solution in order to rejuvenate the town centres that we care so deeply about. Well, that's right. I mean, you talk about the perfect day. Well, that's that is totally taken from what we do because we we know that we need to keep our shops neat, tidy, well presented, but. You can't say you've got to tidy it up every day. We, we, that's the easiest way to make that happen is to pick one day, which we do. We we have one day in our business, which is the perfect day, and so on that day, every shop, every every office, indeed, is expected to be perfect, and that lifts all the standards back up and keeps going for another year. Which well, it yes. work, works for us. Right? I thought, well, why don't we do it? In, for people in the town centre, in the high street. So well, we've done one. We did one in Altrincham, which was great fun because I went there on the day. And uh, I, they got it. They uh, they really were interested. I went around and chatted to a lot of the retailers. But then, uh, as we know, uh, along came COVID and all those things seemed to be put on hold. But, uh, but I think that Altrincham is one of those places that's already had a few good ideas particularly the, the uh, transformation of the, the old market there. And it will, always was a market town. So yep. it's, it's sort of going back to basics. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am talking to Lindy, founder of Explode Social Media. And during this live, she shared a whole host of Instagram insights, tips and tricks. So the general rule of thumb is posting once a day and doing your stories as much as you can. If you are selling something like a box of pills that is not very sexy, and there aren't very many ways for you to talk about your product. What you don't want to do is post once a day and annoy people, but it's industry specific. Yeah. But what I can tell you is the big brands will post once a day and do two stories a day because you want that constant engagement. Yeah. Um, so that's a generally good rule yeah. of thumb. And you're so right, mm. right? If you have an entire new uh, children's clothes collection, yeah. you know, you've got something unique to post each day, then that's great. But if you yes. had one pair of trousers, yes. posting every day would be boring. For the latest lessons, advice and insights, join me every Wednesday at midday live on my Instagram. You can also visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. 
For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash getinvolved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. Do you think that the future of the high street with COVID, it's not, I know you've been said it's not all doom and gloom. Some of the good things developing during this lockdown will survive. Do you think that we have sped up a appreciation of small, an appreciation of independence, an appreciation of community, people? Yes, I do. And I think that uh, what I'm starting to see is, is very much an appetite to get back out there shopping. Uh, not for everybody. I mean, I think that online retail, some people were always online shoppers before COVID, but it, it'll settle its, into its place. Interesting, it's starting to, online is, has re, last month's reduced a bit, and I expect to see a little bit more of that. But I think that uh, you are going to see a real concern by more and more local towns that they're not happy to have empty shops and they mm-hmm. want to get back. They want to get the buzz back and yeah. they want to get people there. They want people talking to each other. People sat outside on street. That's one good thing that happened. That the, the cafes, when they first opened, had to have the tables outside. Yes, what, agreed. That was great. And the local council suddenly said, oh, we who love they, they incidentally more than anyone else need to stop making rules. Uh, <laughs> they really, but suddenly they, they said, "Okay, no, you can do it." I know we had yes. a law, law you couldn't, but and didn't that put much more of life back Energy. into the street? Yeah, that's right. So I think there's quite a lot of good things starting to happen. And uh, one of the worries of post-COVID, as far as that's concerned, is that uh, uh, the jobsworth sector. Will t- not want they'll be desperate to uh, keep on to the hold on life that they've had uh, because it's been a bonanza for rule makers over the last 18 months and we've mm. got to let go of that I mean they, I do think that we've got to understand we can we are all adults we can actually run our lives with it without being told what to do it's it's it's, it's slightly worrying I, I'm wondering I, I spoke to Sir Tim Smith, um, obviously founder of Eden, and we talked about mm. this re-emergence of the oldie world approach, you know, of people rediscovering the joys of gardening, of growing their own vegetables, of people becoming more connected with what they're buying and where they're buying from. Do you have any advice for the small business community about basically how to navigate this time and time ahead? I know every, there's a lot of people who like to invent the, the next fantastic Amazon business, or the effect, they see these businesses are floating up for billions of pounds. Uh, but I think that's a sort of phantom world. Yeah. I, I don't understand what's going there. I don't want to, what's in the minds of people who invest money in uh, something that didn't exist four years ago and now they value it six billion because they're selling cars in a slightly different way. Mm. But that's always, ever since we had the uh, dot com bubble. It, uh, in the very late 90s and uh, around the millennium it's you always had this strange investment i suppose they 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 had it years ago with the gold rush and all that stuff so leaving that aside i think that the most important thing to people think of their building up business is what am i doing that's different what am i doing that is different for customers and i actually i do think that what people appreciate is really good customer service and mm-hmm. uh, although 
lots of what we hear about in business is how algorithms are deciding exactly how you should market yourself and everything to be done by artificial intelligence and all that. I actually believe the ones that win out best are those that meet their customers and, mm. and actually understand what they should be doing by through that face-to-face -face exchange. It's so... Ref I mean, I was... Love this thing happened to me this on Tuesday this week. I, uh, I was in London and I was chatting to a customer who was waiting for a, 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 a watch strap to be fitted. And so it was taking a bit of time. She disappeared. Then she came back. And, and she, gave, she gave me a bottle of water. She bought a bottle of water for myself and the guys running the shop. It was just lovely to have that relationship with your customers yeah. that you have a chat. And that's, that's the best market research you can do. It's it's just such a good lesson for us all to remember. I think there's so much, John, and I, I'm sure you appreciate it. You know, you, you're building a business today and you feel almost bombarded by technology advancements and that if you're not on the train, you know, you're going to miss the stops. And, you know, that can be anything from building your business on Instagram. Let's say you don't have a physical shop, you know, and then they release a new thing and you've got to do that. And you find yourself, you know, 50% of your day you know, very smartly by our social media companies, we work for them in a mm. way. And we're not actually concentrating on our the foundations of our business, those foundations that will see us for 20 years driving through. So it's a difficult time to have that courage to, you know, to, to almost get back to the basics. But you can't avoid the fact that we live in very much an IT world and uh, we have our IT department and... But there's a bit of a difference there in that everyone in our tech area knows that they are there to give, what I was talking about earlier, of giving the support that our people in the shops need to make their job easier. Mm -hmm. Whereas quite a lot of tech can make their job more difficult. Yeah. So the em emphasis is very much on giving them all the information. For instance, the information they need. I mean, one of our areas which is key cutting is getting more and more technical as time goes on and a lot of it's to do with car keys particularly and now we've got loads of information they've got at their fingertips in the shops so they've got much more kit that can handle these keys which are connected to the uh the electrics of the car mm -hmm. and so on and so we can tackle more and more jobs but we just but it's still the people who do it uh, but yes. we're just using the tech to give them lots more information so it's easier for them to do the job. Human first, tech second. That's right, that's right. Yeah. I, I couldn't speak to you today, John, without mentioning, and I think people will fall off their chair if they don't know this fact about you already, that you and your late wife, Alex, extraordinarily fostered 90 children. Um, and I, I it just, it, my mind again blows and why you have been such a, important person for me to interview and capture this incredibleness. You've written extensively on the subject, on how the experience has not only changed you as a human being, but it's also, and this is what I'm interested in, changed your view on the workplace. Can you tell me more about this? Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, you're quite clear, my late wife, Alex, was the person who did just about 90% of the fostering job, probably more, actually. Uh, I, I, I was just, I was the support in this particular, Alex was the front line doing the job. But it meant that 
I got I got to understand a lot more about families because mm. I got involved in probably about forty or fifty families along the way of uh, you know case reviews. Quite often, uh, dropping their child off for a visit and meeting them in various ways, and, and understood a lot. I mean, pe- people used to would write quite rightly say, "Well, you can't appreciate much about the people who work for you. You don't live their, their sort of lives," and that's totally true. But I have seen a lot of things that people do have to have to negotiate in life, and uh, so that that was very helpful. Uh, but I think. Uh, I mean, my wife Alex had an awful lot of influence on on the values we've had of the business, and uh, I mean now there's there's suddenly a great sort of mention of kindness. I'm seeing people wearing badges saying "Be kind" and so on. Uh, it's a very new thing. Uh, Alex was talking about that twenty years ago, thirty years ago, mm. and uh, she said, "You know." She was being interviewed once and about why do you do it and uh, why do we have a fairly generous uh, attitude towards our uh, colleagues. And she said, well, you turned around to the interviewer and said, you know, you can be nice and have a great business, you know, which uh, was <sighs> quite, it brought him up. He was speechless, yes. the poor guy. But it's so true that, I mean, we have almost, we've built our business around our people and caring for them. And that's absolutely right at the centre of what we do. When Alex said that to that interviewer, and, you know, as someone who has had my roller coaster trying to find my place, certainly as a woman in business and being a business leader and that sort of notion of being kind or empathetic or understanding people meant that you somehow couldn't be great at business and you couldn't run a successful business... Do you think it's changing? You know, do you think the way that Alex is thinking has now caught on? And do you think that those of us who really believed in what Alex has said and what you believe, we're on the right path, that we should hold true to it? You know what I mean? Be be courageous in understanding we can be good people, you can run a good business, it can actually do good for the world and it can be successful and to not ever apologise for that. Mm. I, I think that when I talk about the way we run our business, people actually now nod and appreciate and, and, and do think, yeah, I, I, I sort of get that. But they don't get that enough to be able to do it themselves because they've right. not got the courage. So, I mean, I'm trying to use our experience in, I mean, particularly over the last five years, I've been doing a lot of work with schools to get schools to understand the importance of the early years that those children have experienced and attachment problems, which, uh, I mean, the simple thing is to get, in this case, teachers to understand why they cho- why the children behave the way they do, which is mm. a key thing in terms of helping kids who've had a difficult start in life and not, and not just dealing with them by excluding them from school, but actually giving them the sort of attention they, they deserve. So that's well, but talking about the, the the whole, do you think people are changing? I, I mean, another area I'm looking at is uh, children's services, social services, because uh, you know that less than twenty percent of a social worker's time is spent with children and families. No. And How? How is that possible? Well, because the other eighty percent is spent on admin. Yeah. On, on paperwork. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It's all. 
defensive stuff that's uh, trying to make sure that everything's logged and it's not their fault. It's, yes. It, it, it's basically uh, they're, they're looking after themselves rather more than looking after the children. Anyway, so I'm... Well, I was having a meeting yesterday, got another one next week. I'm just trying to get the message through to yeah. the people involved in local authorities and social services, the children's social services, that actually the way to run it is to let the social workers have more freedom to do it, do the job the way they think is best. Again, it's the uh, same philosophy that you've had in your business, uh, talking about the high street and now here, mm. you know, giving people the trust to say that they actually do know best, that they're mm. going to do the right thing. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So I would think that the answer to my question when thinking about small businesses out there who are maybe trying to be the cookie-cutter versions of the, you know, um, big wigs in big businesses, et cetera, et cetera, mm. would be to understand that potentially the key is to be themselves, to be good human beings... You know, to, to, to actually have bravery in saying that you are a kind business person. And also treat all the colleagues you've got as, as being part of your business, not just employees. That's why we use yeah. that's that's why we use the word colleague, because we're all colleagues. We're all in the same game together. I mean, I, I've noticed that with, because part of our business is franchised and uh, that's Snappy Snaps. And this, uh, certainly when we started, we when we bought that business, I discovered some of the franchisees never, they, they took all the paperwork home because they didn't always work in their shop. Some had more than one shop, but they never let the colleagues working in the shop see what the turnover was or see what the figures were about. Right. What's that about? I mean, it's, they, they, it's their business as much as yours in a way, in that it's, you know, that's, they, they've thrown their hat in the ring and said, I want to have a career with you. And yes. I think they're entitled to know how the thing's doing. And uh, they may actually be able to contribute quite a lot. But uh, that's, that's a sort of uh, a, a, a mistake that people can make when they're set out on their own, thinking they, think they have to tell everyone what to do. No, if you could pick someone who's better than you, that's great, isn't it? Isn't it much yeah. better? Instead of finding someone who you can tell what to do because and, and they won't cause you any trouble because they're going to just be compliant. This is all about hiring, John, and, and you have this, um, this wonderful term of happy hiring. So you've referred to it as the Mr. Men model um, and that you recruit based solely on personalities, as you've mentioned, uh, rather than a set of qualifications or experience. And that actually, that you've said, I only have two rules, as you said, look the part and put the money in the till, which is just so brilliant. So what is this philosophy? So you just literally, your area managers are looking at this personality and they're, and they're saying, literally calling them Mr. Men characters? The way it happened was that when we started out on this upside down, management thing uh i it was pretty obvious from the start we were hiring the wrong people we were we were actually employing cobblers and key cutters and people who yes. wear watches and so on and we didn't want them we wanted the people with the right personality yes because the, if you look to the people who are really successful it was the real characters in our business who take the most money so to get the message across we came up with the idea to actually I was on a train once down to London and suddenly thought, well, we could have a little form with all these Mr. Men characters. And they, we have Mrs. and we have a Miss. So there's 
there's the really sort of heroes of our business, you know, Miss Quick, Mr. Punch, Mr. Fantastic, Mr. Helpful. Yeah. But then there's also yeah. another lot of Mr. Dull and Mr. Slow, Mrs. Scruffy, and uh, the, 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 the <laughs> and just a simple idea. You've got these little cartoons with the names and a little empty box under each name. And you just say, just tick those bo tick the boxes of the character that most fits the person you're talking to. Mm. And it works. And if they're, they're the positive boxes, then you ask that person to work for a day in one of our shops, and we pay them to do it. Uh, and as long as they're with someone who gets it, uh, we, we now know whether they're the right personality for us. So we're not bothered about the CV. I don't care how many uh, GCSEs, A-levels, whatever. Uh, not interested. And certainly none of this psychometric testing. We we don't filter them through any sort of uh, artificial intelligence thing. They don't. We don't tackle them online first. We might talk to them on the telephone. We can get a clear idea from that. But yeah. it's interview. It's face-to-face. -face. Get to know them. See whether they're the right people. Human to human. And that's why I enjoy going around our shops because I know I'm meeting loads of really nice people. And and it wouldn't surprise those that are listening that if you're believing in people so much, um, that am I right in saying that currently 10% of your workforce are ex-convicts, that ex-offenders? and. Yep. You are championing, and it's important for them to re-enter society and work for Timpson. And you call them foundation colleagues. Is that right? That's right. We call it the foundation. Yeah, identifies a sort of. It's almost a club that they really like being. I mean, it's amazing that a lot, a lot of them have done really well. We've been doing this for nineteen, twenty years, and they're really proud. They're and they so. So they should be. They should be proud of what they've done and how they've changed their lives around. And now they're changing our business around by some of them are area managers. And they've been far better than anyone would have we expected in the first place. But, uh, yeah, and it's more than ten percent because uh, we're probably nearer twelve and a half, thirteen percent, something like that. Do you have a personal favourite story of someone that you might have helped? I remember uh, some years ago. Now I was I was in Wimbledon in the shop. And uh, this guy said, "Do you mind if I have a chat with you outside?" And uh, and he'd he'd come to us. He'd been in Wandsworth. He was a drug dealer, and uh, who incidentally are probably the best recruits we have because uh, they're pretty good business people. And uh, he uh, he said, "Look, I I just wanted to say, it, if it wasn't for you, I'd be back there because you know it, I earned a lot more money on the drug side. I get with you, but." But I was always, every night I was worried of whether the police were going to call on my house and my partner was, couldn't, couldn't stand it. And, and now I feel so much better and it's great. And he said, uh, oh. and I'm getting married. <laughs> Would you like to come? Wow. Every week, Royal Mail helps small businesses deliver across the UK. With a staggering 74% of online shoppers more likely to use a retailer if they use them, Royal Mail helps small businesses thrive. 
As a central and crucial pillar within the small business community, Royal Mail continue to be dedicated to supporting our UK small business community. And therefore, I'm thrilled they are giving away their ad break space to a small business founder every week, providing them with the opportunity to showcase their business to tens of thousands of listeners right here on this very podcast. If you'd like to take Royal Mail up on their generosity, then head over to at Royal Mail Business to find out more. So let's hand over to this week's Royal Mail Independent Ad Break winner. Hi, my name is Sophia and I run Sophia Barton Illustration. I started drawing and painting when I was diagnosed with postnatal depression a few years ago and it completely changed my life. It helped me see the beauty around me in nature and in people and in those everyday seconds that I wouldn't have noticed. I started recording what I saw with my watercolour and acrylic paintings. I'm so, so glad I started painting because I was part of the exhibition at the Baltic Centre of Contemporary Art this year for the Open Call and I'm so, so glad that I was part of it. I design Victorian matchboxes based around places in the UK, inspired by their history and also inspired by my granddad's collection from India when I was younger. I just love the style. Come get some affordable gifts and prints from my Etsy shop and make someone's day magical. And if you'd like to take Royal Mail up on their generosity, then head over to at Royal Mail Business on Instagram, where you'll find a whole host of tips and advice on how to create a winning ad. Good luck. Now, let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. You know, businesses, one of the things I hope, John, that I can do is try and help small businesses that are growing now or have grown to understand the power of who they are as founders and 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 the magical tool of running a business you know your your power your position your privilege that actually it's it's more than the utilitarian nature of your business it's more than the bottom line it's actually the energy and the change that you can make you know, to do good, to change people's lives for the better, et cetera, et cetera. You, I, um, reading up on some of your articles, you said entrepreneurs are in a privileged position. They influence more people than politicians, teachers, doctors, social workers, or clergymen. It's, it's really inspiring. You still believe this? Oh, absolutely. In fact, only last week, because I've I've been I've been knocking around for a very long time. I'm, I mean, I I don't all I do these days. I'm a bit like out of Grace Brothers, the "Are you being served?" thing. I'm I'm young Miss I'm young Mister Grace, who's the old guy who used to come in and just say, "You're all doing very well," and then wander on. That's what I do. Uh, so I just mentioned I, I asked. Well, I, I don't want to have any sort of party to celebrate the sixty years I've since I started, but. Uh, why don't you just send me a little note about your story of being with us? And I've got most amazing stories coming back from people who, and you do realise then that what it difference the the fact that we run the business the way we do is made to people's lives and their families. Yeah, and and talking of entrepreneurs and talking about our our power, you came from a long line of entrepreneurs, and that your great grandfather. 
quite remarkably opened the first Timpson shop in the 1860s yeah. and was just 16 years old. Is that right? And At 16, he started running a shop with his brother-in-law. It was in a quiet area of Manchester, so and he was brought to. He was more ambitious than that, so he left his brother-in-law when he was nineteen and opened a shop on his own, uh, which was the real, really was the start of what we do now. Uh, it's just incredible, and you, so you were brought up with this passion for business. Do you think that that's because I now know that you are yourself hiring your children, your grandchildren are involved in the business. And I'm a passionate believer, John, and again, why I was so excited to talk to you about, you know, some of the things I've been involved in have helped families work together, employ their children, all these sorts of things. And I, I just think it's just this a, a beautiful thing. So you you were brought up in this way and now you're passing it on. So family, this sort of, I don't know, the, the the world that you've created must be so important mm. to you. you know, I, I mean, I think the family business is a is a very powerful way of creating a great enterprise, uh, particularly because uh, you do have this a different relationship with the colleagues of the business, and they, mm. you've got considerably more continuity. That they, they will, whereas most people are working for a business where the chief executive is going to move on every five years, six years, yep. and you'll get another regime with someone else who wants to make their mark. But like, you know, every time there's an election of change of part, party, that's yep. all complete change. Yep. But the same with business, not in family businesses. And uh, I think it helps to know that we intend to be around as a family business in 20 years' time, 40 years' time, 60 years' time. Because basically that's number one on our list. That's our strategy. I mean, right yeah. top of the... And I did mention earlier, watch the cash. We watch the cash every day. I can tell you exactly what it was this morning in our bank account. Because mm. that gives us the... Op- that, as long as we control that, as long as we've, we've got mm. money in the bank, then we were not going to lose control of the business. And therefore, yeah. we always give that consistent... Uh, journey for all the colleagues that work for us. Oh, John, I I can't keep you forever. I wish I could. Um, But thank you so much. I I end all my interviews um, with the analogy that your journey in business is often like an epic roller coaster, you know, lots of lows, lots of highs. Um, What would you say, John, has been one of your biggest lows whilst on this journey? Well, I mean, obviously, the biggest low of the lot was... Uh, losing Alex, who was such a powerful uh, influence on the way we we live our lives, uh, but also as part of that, the, we used to be, as you mentioned, it was uh, originally a shoe shop business. My great grandfather started the shoe shop, had two hundred and sixty of them when I started work for it, and uh, in nineteen eighty seven, I sold the shoe shops, and that was it. Was actually looking back, a brilliant thing to have done. But on the very day, and I can remember having to tell everybody what I'd done, that was a big low because you talk about that family business thing. And that was me letting down the rest of the family in a way. Uh, it was the right thing to do, uh, but it was a very difficult decision. And very diff- painful. Yeah, it was. was indeed. And it goes without saying, I'm incredibly sorry for your loss. And now it sounds like one of the most unbelievable human beings and 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 lives on in everything I'm I'm sure that the business does and 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 in all your hearts um can I ask conversely what your greatest high is John 
it sort of happened every day. Every time you visit yeah. a shop and it's great. <laughs> I mean, just so, you know, we've done that. I mean, they've done that. And it, it, and how well it works and how this, how well this upside down management thing works. And I, it, I had one particular day when we opened our thousands shop, which actually is down the road. It's on the, on the site where the shoe shops used to be run from. It's where the warehouse used to be. It's outside of Tesco. And I thought, well, this is a dream come true. And as a result of that, I thought, well, I know what we're going to do to celebrate. We're going to introduce a new scheme for our colleagues, which we call our dream come true. And we now actually have a budget of a million pounds that we spend on helping colleagues make their dream come true. Oh, which, my goodness. Which got cut down a bit during COVID, but now we're, now we're through that. We... So they go off, lots of people go to Vegas or go to the other side of the world. We can't at the moment so much to meet up with relatives. We've had uh, IVF treatments. We've had, we, we've paid for two divorces, which actually made a lot of people very happy. Uh, but <laughs> a whole manner of things, uh, chairlifts, what the odd motor car, uh, lots of different things which... Uh, it's just a great thing to be in a position to do. To, uh, you, we've got these people out there who've done so much to help us. And this is a way of saying, we've made money thanks to you. We're going to use quite a bit of that money to help you back. Oh, gosh, I'm going to listen to this interview about a thousand times. I hope everyone listening is scribbling notes. How... How you can be more John in your business. Think of him as a Mr. Men character. Um, whatever, draw him. Uh, you need to be more John. John, this is this time of the interview where I ask um, my guests to read a letter to their younger self. Um, I don't know what you're going to say, but I just want to thank you in advance um, for sharing any of your wisdom with us. You've shared so much with us today. Um, might I hand over to you? Well, here goes. It's a Dear John letter, of course. Dear John, yes. this letter may help you avoid some of life's pitfalls, but despite my advice, you will probably make lots of unwise decisions and do things you will bitterly regret. But don't worry, the best way to learn is through experience. You will have more fun if your glass is half full rather than half empty. You will be blessed with plenty of pieces of luck on the way and the occasional light bulb moment, which provides the perfect opportunities to make a difference, but only if you are positive. Pessimists miss the boat by looking for problems. If you have a good idea, get on with it. Remember, tortoises only make progress when they stick their necks out. Dare to be different. Don't just copy the crowd, follow your instinct, especially if best practice doesn't seem like common sense. To succeed in business, pick the right people and watch the cash. The biggest mistake most managers make is taking far too long before helping weak colleagues found their happiness elsewhere. No one likes firing a colleague, but nearly everyone feels better when the deed is done. Although you might be tempted to cash in by floating the company or selling the business, don't. A family business has many advantages. In particular, you're not hampered by city investors and can use common sense. Remember that your company colleagues are part of the family. Look after them by providing the security of consistent management. Picking your life's partner is probably the most important decision you can take. Your home is the foundation stone on which you can build your values. Falling in love is a long-term project. 
put kindness at the top of your agenda. There isn't anything more satisfying than helping others. You can still be nice and have a great business. <laughs> oh, John, thank you so much. What a beautiful letter, a beautiful soul and an amazing business leader. Um, I've been looking forward to this, John, so much. Um, your wisdom, your stories, I've, I've read all about you and couldn't wait to actually talk to you. And it has been even better than expected. Um, we're going to take so much away from this. And um, thank you for being you, brave John. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.